with me to that portion of Scripture we read a few moments ago in John's Gospel. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Now, on the 4th of February this year, a woman called Hilary Mantle, a Booker Prize winning author, she delivered a lecture at, um, at the British Museum on Great Russell Street, Hilary Mantle. And during the course of this lecture, uh, Mantle attacked the, the image of Kate Middleton that the press provide for the public. So the gist of it was that Mantle's saying, really, that the media give society, they give us a kind of fake representation of the Duchess of Cambridge, that the press give us a version of her that's, that's kind of unreal, bland, and it's uh, boring and a bit, bit dull. And of course, you know this story, I'm sure, and you know that what she said, what Mrs. Mantle said, was met with opposition, and it even drew a response uh, from the Prime Minister as he toured India. So that's Hilary Mantle and Kate Middleton. But is it not the case that we, in the Christian church, we are in danger of doing the same thing with Jesus Christ? Because what is the image, really, that, that we give society about our Lord and Savior? What image do we project? You know, do we live in a way, honestly, do we live in a way that shows society that Jesus Christ is, you know, supreme and sovereign in our lives? Do we do that? Do we live in a way that shows the people around us that Jesus Christ is the source of joy and excitement and a source of real hope? Or, as Hilary Matto claims about the press, is the truth more like us projecting an image of Jesus that is boring? Do we project Jesus as being dull? Do we give an unreal image about Jesus? Basically, are we giving the world a plastic Jesus? A plastic Jesus. Well, this morning, the intention just now, is really to look at this incident that we read, this, this miracle, just healing a man born blind. And the intention is to consider three revelations about Jesus that we learn here. Okay, Three revelations that Jesus gives us here. And hopefully, God willing, these revelations, they will enhance and inform our understanding of Jesus, yes. But also, hopefully these three revelations that we've got about Jesus in this passage, hopefully they will colour and shape the picture and the image that we project of Jesus to the world. That these things will shape, colour, the image that we give Jesus to the people who 
surround us in our lives. Three revelations about Jesus Christ. But before we get into the sort of nuts and bolts of this, before we get into the, 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 the meat of this section, let's just consider one introductory point here, okay? One very short introductory point. And that's that the man here in this miracle is born blind. Did you see that? He's born blind. So let's be clear from the very, very outset that spiritual blindness, that's what we're dealing with here, spiritual blindness, it is an inherent problem. That our blindness because of our sin is something that we inherit. It's something that we come into the world with. It is something that we are born with. That is the starting point for this miracle. And it is the starting point of your life and my life. The man is born blind. Okay, let's get into this miracle and... Let's consider our first revelation here. Our first revelation, our first point. And that is that Jesus is the one sent by God. Jesus is the one sent by God. Now this miracle that we have here, it varies in many, many ways from the other miracles that we've looked at. And it varies from these miracles in the manner in which it was conducted, doesn't it? You know, if you think back on what we've looked at over the last couple of months in these signs, and think about the way that the miracles were conducted. Think about the water into wine. Remember that? How does Jesus do that? He wills the water into wine, doesn't he? And then we've got uh, Jesus healing the... The, the sick. You've got Jesus healing the lame. How does he do that? He does that by the power of his word. But here in this one, in this sign, in this miracle, it's very, very different, isn't it? There's mud involved in this. And there's water involved here too. Now, what do you think? We could probably maybe let that pass, couldn't we? And we could just start thinking about the, the deeper uh, spiritual and religious significance of this sign. But surely if Jesus is using such unusual means here, then surely that, that matters, doesn't it? So if you'll permit it, what do these means mean? What do these means mean? Well, for a moment, folks, just consider the pool that's mentioned here. Did you notice that? The pool of, what's it called? The pool of Siloam. It's the second time that we've encountered a pool, isn't it? But this is very different to the pool at Bethesda. Because at Bethesda, that was a spring, wasn't it? You know, cast your mind back to that. We learned, didn't we, that the pool there at Bethesda, it bubbled up. On occasion, it was a, it was a spring. But Siloam is very different to that. You see, 
Water flows into Siloam. It comes into this pool through a channel from the Kidron Valley. Siloam wasn't a spring. Water was sent into it. But okay, I hear you say, so what? Who cares? You know, why does John draw attention to this? Why does he bother telling us the name of the pool? Well, he doesn't just do that, does he? If you have a look at verse 7, John doesn't just tell us that this miracle took place at Siloam. He even tells us and spells out what Siloam means. What does it say? It says Siloam means sent. The name of the pool means sent. And what John's doing in this section of Scripture, and please hear this, John is showing us that spiritual sight can only come through the one who is sent from God. That's why he tells us about Siloam. That's why he spells it out so clearly. That's why he gives us all the deep. Our only place of healing is in one who was sent. So what do you think? Do you think that is stretching a bit? Do you think that is perhaps a bit far-fetched? Are we uh, pulling at Scripture there just a wee bit too much, inferring too much? If you think that, have a look at verse 4. Because look at Jesus' own emphasis here. He says in verse 4, We must do the work of him who sent me. He draws attention to the fact that he is sent. And then on top of that, consider the fact that Jesus being one sent from God, that is one of the major, the foremost themes of John's gospel. You know, if you read John's gospel from start to finish, you will find so many references to the fact that Jesus was sent, sent by God. John 1.17, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. John 3.17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world. And that can go on and on and on and on. There are innumerable references in John's gospel. You see the point? point is this. One commentator says about this miracle we've got here. He says that this healing, this is a sign that clearly reveals Jesus as the sent one, as the sent son of God. So friends, if you come to church this morning, and if you've come looking for cleansing, if you are desperate to experience the grace of God in your life, then what you learn in this portion of Scripture is that the only way that you can be washed clean is if you are washed in the pool of Siloam. The only way that you can be cleansed is if you are cleansed by the one who was sent by God to atone for sin.
See, Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 24, he says this. He says, this is it. This is the main thing. This is the work of God. To believe in the one that he has sent. Believe in the one that he has sent. Okay, but is there not also a kind of a challenge or an inherent challenge here for believers in the fact that our Savior, our Lord, was one who was sent into the world. Is there not a challenge for for Christians here? Well, yeah, there is, because simply by being one who was sent, Jesus demonstrates obedience, doesn't he? If you are one who was sent, if you are one who is willing to be sent, you demonstrate obedience. And to be sent on a work like he was, to be given such a work as this, and to carry it out, it demanded radical and absolute and perfect and submissive obedience. And then when we read verses like John 20, John 20, 21, we see just what that means for the believers here this morning. Because there we read this. Jesus says, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. You see, Christians, we've been given the most incredibly exciting work to do, haven't we? We've been called to go and make disciples of all nations. We've been called to proclaim the gospel. We've been called to project in our lives an image of Jesus Christ that will attract people to him. And that requires, friends, humble, self-sacrificial and radical obedience. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Jesus Christ is the one sent by God. Okay, let's move on. Let's consider a second thing this morning. Let's consider a second revelation. And that is that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Now, folks, did you uh, perhaps read in the last couple of weeks of the diamond heist that took place in Belgium, in Brussels Airport? This was something else. It involved... A group of, I think it was eight gang members, and they uh, drove in a hangar in the airport, and they made away with approximately $50 million worth of jewels and precious stones. Some heist. And in the um, immediate aftermath of this theft, the only thing that could be agreed upon. The only thing that the police and the airport staff and all the investigators, the only thing that they could agree upon was that how this small group of people managed to pull this off was a complete 
an utter mystery. The only thing they could agree upon was that this was a mystery. And when we turn to John's Gospel, we see a kind of similar thing because all the biblical commentators, the only thing that they can agree upon about the mud that Jesus uses, why Jesus uses mud is a complete and utter mystery. Why did Jesus use mud? What was the point of it? Well, despite the confusion, let's propose a couple of possibilities here. Why did Jesus use mud? Well, the first one, please think Elijah. Think Elijah and think Mount Carmel. I'm sure you're familiar with the incident there. Now, at Carmel, Elijah is in conflict, isn't he, with the prophets of Baal. And they're taking it in turns to to call down to their gods to send fire upon two altars that they've built. The prophets of Baal have built one, and Elijah has one. And when it comes to Elijah's turn, Elijah doesn't just cry out to God and say, send fire, does he? Elijah does something else. Elijah pours water onto the altar. And then what does he do? He pours more water on the altar. And then more water. And he does that to demonstrate that when God does send fire and burn it up, demonstrates God's unique power over the elements. And perhaps, only perhaps, the same thing is happening in John chapter 9. You know, by Jesus putting mud onto the blindness, is he amplifying the problem here? Is he amplifying it and just demonstrating that he is one who has a unique and supreme power, power over the elements, yes, but power even over blindness. So it could be that. Or it could also be a type of recreation here. I think back to Eden, the Garden of Eden. God there, he takes dirt from the ground, doesn't he? Dirt to create man. And then in this sign, a sign that points to rebirth, it points to recreation. We see Jesus take the dirt from the ground and again apply it to man. It could be that. These are possibilities, perhaps nothing more. But whatever the significance of the mud might be, what is clear is that when this mud is removed, what is clear that Jesus has acted here and he has acted to take away darkness and to give light. Now remember what we said right at the beginning of the sermon. This is a guy here who was born blind. Born blind. This is a man who's never even seen so much as a a, a spark or or a glimmer of light. And now look at him. He's had this encounter 
with the Lord God. And the mud is washed out of his eyes. And what, what does it say? It says here, verse 7, he came home seeing the mud's gone. The darkness is gone. And now there is light. And we learn in this miracle here, don't we, the beautiful, beautiful truth of Jesus' claim in verse 5, that he is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the only one who can take that gloom of your sin and that obscurity of your sin and replace it with the brilliance and the, the radiance of the gospel. You know, he's the one that John calls the light of men. The one that John calls the the light of life. He's the one that the Old Testament refers to as lights to the Gentiles. And the light of salvation. He's the one whose earthly ministry began with a star. A star of light that bathed, bathed Bethlehem in radiance. And he is the one whose death, it was accompanied, what was it accompanied with? It was accompanied with three solid hours of darkness. Here is one who is light. Here is one who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus Christ is the light. He is the light of the world. And friends, sometimes, sometimes we have to be taken to our lowest point. Sometimes we have to be taken to those dark, dark, dark places before we look up and see the light of Jesus Christ. And if that is where you are this morning, then hear the words, the opening words of Psalm 27. It says there, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In whom shall I be afraid? Friend, if this is you, then look to Jesus Christ this morning. Look to the light. And if you do that, you will have that mud washed out of your eyes. And you will see, you will see. And believers here, don't think that we get off scot-free. We don't. Because Jesus Christ, he isn't just a, a light unto salvation, is he? He is a guiding light. What do we learn in Psalm 119? We learn that the word of God is a lamp for our feet. A lamp for our feet and a light for our paths. You see, friends, if we expect, if we expect the people in our families, and if we expect the people we work with and encounter, if we expect them to understand and to see the Savior and to not be given a kind of false and, and plastic impression of who he really is, then we must be living, following his example. We must live in that 
guiding light. So I ask you, I urge you, renew yourselves today. Renew your commitment to walking in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, a number of years ago, um, I worked with a mission team that came over from uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, they were a great bunch of people, but when they came over, they let it slip when they were talking to me that before they came over to Scotland, they had undergone classes to prepare themselves for the culture shock that would be theirs when they hit the kingdom of Fife. And of course, as soon as I heard that, I thought, I have to find out what these people learn about Scotland. And one of the things that they were told, well, these... uh, Lovely southern ladies that came over. They were told, first thing, tone down the makeup. Make sure you wear less makeup when you come over uh, to Scotland, which I, I, I couldn't believe. But the main thing, the main thing that they were told was that they were given a taboo subject. They were given something that they must not, under any circumstances, speak about in this left-leaning area of Scotland. And that was, do not talk about politics. Do not, under any circumstances, talk about American foreign policy in Kirkcaldy. No way. So that was the number one, number one taboo subject. And we close tonight looking at a similar thing. Because tonight, our third point, this morning, our third point is Jesus is the judge of the world. Jesus is the judge of the world. And for this, we need, to, we need to really focus on the last section that we read there. It was a long reading, wasn't it? But that last section of Scripture, kind of from uh, verse 35 onward, you know, because we've seen that the, the guy receives a sight, and we've seen that he meets his neighbors, and they question him. Then he meets the Pharisees, and what do they do? Well, they, they kick him out. They kick him out of the synagogue. But then what happens? Jesus comes back to the man. So he comes back to this man. Now, what is the content of what Jesus says to him? Well, Jesus Christ makes it clear in this last section of Scripture that he is, that Jesus Christ is the supreme judge of mankind. He is the judge of mankind. We read... In verse 39, he says, For judgment I have come into the world. For judgment. And then he enhances the picture of that. Because how does he refer to himself? What's his self-designation here? What does he call himself? What's the term that he uses? Verse 35, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. You heard that before, the Son of Man. Well, that refers back to Daniel chapter 7. And that refers to the Son of Man there, who was a figure, a great figure, who would come in the clouds. The Son of Man in Daniel was a figure of authority, a figure of glory, yes, but a sovereign figure, a figure who would ultimately come to judge the whole earth. And you see, friends, 
Throughout Scripture, we learn that the Son of God, that Jesus Christ, will come again. And he will come again in judgment. John chapter 5. Listen to this verse. What a startling verse this is. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Acts 17.31 God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. How? Through the man that he has appointed. You see, friends, this is a sober truth, isn't it? Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming to judge the world. And when he does that, some people will be declared spiritually blind because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God. So, friend, I would say if you are in the situation this morning where you've come here and you perhaps haven't before given Jesus all that much thought, you've heard his name, you've been to church, but for you, he has remained outside your line of vision. Well, I would say to you, do not delay. If Jesus Christ is speaking to you this morning, if God is working in your heart, do not delay. Do what the guy did in this portion of Scripture. And when faced with a first glimpse of the Son of Man, then fall, call out to him, just as the guy did here. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Because for those who are in Jesus Christ, there is a great thing coming for us. There is a new dawn coming. There is a new light coming. Because God loves his people. He loves us. And because of that love, he has created something for us. He has made a home. He has made a city for us. A city that has no tears in it. A city that has no pain in it. A city that has no darkness in it whatsoever. And how will that city be lit then? How will that city receive its light? Well, we read in Revelation chapter 21, 22, that our home, you know, this place that God has created for us, it does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb of God is its lamp. So Christians here, surely, given all of that, surely we must act like this man. And we must fall before Jesus Christ. And we must worship him. And you see, it's only when we do that in every single area of our lives. It's only when our worship is all-encompassing. It's only then that the people in our lives we'll see that Jesus Christ is in plastic. 
He isn't fake. He isn't bland. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. And he is the only one that can remove that spiritual blindness. Friends, our hearts should be filled with thankfulness to God for his mercy and for that love that he shows his people. And we should praise him that he can provide spiritual sight. Let's pray.